Donald Trump got a decidedly mixed reception when he visited Nancy's house for the State of the Union. The optics of the chamber, the Democratic side of the aisle abuzz with women in suffragette white, and the Republican caucus dominated by men in dark suits underscored the partisanship that continues to polarize Washington. Meanwhile, even before Trump laid out his vision before a divided Congress, Democratic presidential hopefuls began lining up to challenge him. The 2020 race for president is on. Hello and welcome to the Pundits Tackle Politics. Pilar Marrero and Sherry Bevich Jeffy. We are the Pundets and, and we are tackling, tackling politics. There's an axiom in politics that says where you stand depends on where you sit. That pretty much sums up, I think, the many analyses, criticisms, and hosannas which followed Donald Trump's latest State of the Union address. You could see the physical embodiment of that axiom in the seating chart of the chamber. Dems to Trump's right, the GOP to his left. That's pretty funny when you think about it, isn't it? <laughs> With a anglingly wide aisles separating them. And the waves of Democratic congresswomen dressed in white broadcast the same message. Democrats largely remained in their seats without applauding and expressed only very tepid enthusiasm, even when the president mentioned goals that they might agree with that were intended to appeal to them, like infrastructure, paid parental leave, more funding for HIV AIDS. We don't need to relitigate all of that and just read the many facts and fact checks to determine what he got right and wrong in his policy statements. What began as almost a traditional kumbaya, let's get together, State of the Union address, unity, 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 which is what he had promised, it morphed into a 2020 presidential re-election campaign speech. Then back, briefly, to morning in America, there were, I thought, elements of cut and paste in the speech's content. Trump, then teleprompter, then Trump, then the teleprompter rhetoric. I heard the testing of his 2020 campaign roadmap, and it was this, quote, here in the United States, we are alarmed by new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination and control. We are born free and we will stay free. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be 
a socialist country. There's a reason for that, and we'll get to it. Trump touched on topics of importance to his base, the southern border wall, or whatever he chooses to call it at any given time, anti-abortion rhetoric. He is the first president to use the word womb in the State of the Union address. He spent over 10 minutes of his near record-breaking long speech. Clinton, not surprisingly, holds the record, I believe, <laughs> still for the longest State of the Union address. He spent 10 minutes defending his immigration stances. The, the speech, I think, also belied, well, also showed Trump's nervousness about where the new Democratic House majority is going to take on investigations of Trump, his businesses, his family, his associates. One of the lines of the evening is this. An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are grammar check, <laughs> foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. There's a really cool meme already going around. It's already going around. And it rhymes, and it rhymes. With uh, 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 Nancy Pelosi's face when he said that. Oh, yeah. Because she, she kept her cool during most of it. But when he said that, her face went like, it was like a tick. like. <laughs> well, I think that she was quite surprised when yeah. she saw that, yeah. even though she was reading. One, one last point, and it's my favorite moment in the speech. Um, and he talked about how no one has benefited more from his thriving economy than women and that they have filled 58% of the new jobs. Once he said that, he said exactly one century after women got the vote, we now have a record number of women in Congress. More than any other time, he said, and that's great, he said, really great, congratulations. And Congresswomen, mostly Democrats, stood and clapped and cheered. Did Trump get that their chairs were likely for his role in bringing about their entrance to Congress? So many of them had won their seats by campaigning against him. Uh, one quick word about the Democratic response. Stacey Abrams did a good job. Usually it's risky for the responder. Remember Marco Rubio and his water? and uh, former Governor Jindal sort of staring into space. But Abrams, I think, showed that, that kind of authenticity that voters appear to crave. Um, another axiom, there, it is a fact that sincerity is the hardest thing to fake in politics. If you can fake that, you can fake anything. What do you think, Pilar? What's your estimate? Um, you know, when they told us that he would speak about unity, I obviously was doubtful. Uh, you will be shocked to know. 
being a uniter is not and has never been his political brand, so I, I didn't think he was going to start. But obviously, this is the first State of the Union after the elections, the midterms. So, after the division of Congress. And then he lost, the, the Republicans lost the House, and he is facing a House that has a majority Democrat um, and has a Madam Speaker, who actually he didn't even congratulate, which is customary. You know, he went right into his speech. Um, he did say some nice things, as you point out. You know, he talked a little bit about legislation and things that they, he could have in common with Democrats. But then he went right into the threat of, you know, if you investigate me, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to work with you. Essentially, that's what he said. And he used the word, the word war, right? And he's, you know, as, as you said, he had this really nice uh, sentence that rhymed, we can't have peace in legislation if there is war investigation. I don't know if this is unprecedented, Sherry, but every single day I'm still surprised about the, what this president gets away with. Uh -huh. He's a leader who's essentially telling the country and the opposition that he will not negotiate in legislation that may be needed in the country if his personal preferences aren't met. By that I mean if they hold him accountable for potential whatever, ethics violations, conflicts of interest, or even crimes that he and his campaign may have committed, he will not work with Congress. How is that for unity? So the second thing that shocked me, and you, you, you mentioned a little bit the bit about socialism, right? Yeah. Well, let's not forget he said that in the context of talking about my country of birth. That's Venezuela. right. Venezuela. So he used Venezuela to compare the Maduro, corrupt, autocratic socialism to progressive Democrats who have been calling for reforms such as Medicare for all. You could say that he was comparing people like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders with Nicolás Maduro. And I think personally, that's absolutely ridiculous. The third thing that struck, struck me is that he insists, I mean, this is not new, right? This is kind of old news, but he insists on presenting the border as a national security issue. Of course. Vil but he, he continues to vilify the border and, and, and immigrants in the, in, the, in the worst possible terms. And he, of course, is lying in, in most of those assertions. You know, he, he, we can go on and on about this. <clears throat> but one last thing. When he was talking about how unauthorized immigrants cost American jobs and, and all this, sitting in the audience as guests of Democratic lawmakers were two domestic workers that worked in his golf club in New Jersey, people who cleaned his own house and who were undocumented and who alleged that his own managers in his golf course gave them fake papers so they could work. Right. Right. So I thought that I didn't see mainstream media making a point of commenting. You know, this guy is, is talking about immigration and you have people there sitting in the audience who he hired as undocumented. So let me let me just throw this at you and you can get back to your point. Everything that you have listed has a reason. Sure. Why did he take this route? Tell me. Why did he take this route? Well, it seems to me he's presenting his program to his base. Bingo. Right? He is energizing and mobilizing his base. Sure, sure. 
he will he be able to win just with his base this time? That's a very good question. He, <laughs> you know, but obviously he and his people, his campaign, have made the decision that he certainly can't win without them. Yeah. I agree. And I think that uh, Stacey Abrams' react, um, response was very good in that it immediately when she started talking, she started talking about her working class background and about her dad and her family. And she made a point of talking about all those things that we know are issues for the working class of the United States, right? All the, all the you know, the issue with wages and health care and and all of these things that um, basically attracted some of the base of Donald Trump to him, you know, that, that he was going to attack, you know, all of these things. And he, he had this populist uh, kind of speech, right? And, and uh, well, the question is, um, you know, and we'll talk about that in the second topic, how, okay. they're, how they're going to be presenting this in the campaign. But anyway, the emperor has no clothes. Ladies and gentlemen. Well, he's certainly doing a not so slow motion strip these days, mm. isn't he? Uh, Ooh. He, Ooh. <laughs> I don't think I want to have that in my head. Uh, well, that's <laughs> good point, Pilar. <laughs> Let's erase it from our <laughs> our yes. brain, shall we? But you know, that's a one last point, uh, apropos of your observation about Stacey Abrams. Uh, what she did and what Trump didn't do, she had no nasty rhetoric. No, she and was he, great. she did make her points, and people knew that she was criticizing Donald Trump, but she didn't name him or shame him directly. And her political stock, I think, already very high, shot up. As a result of her performance. Yeah, I like when she said, you know, even as I don't agree with him, I don't want him to fail. Exactly. That, that sounded very patriotic. That but, patriotic and right. noble. So, but the, of course, as I said, I, I don't think he achieved any kind of unity message. But the but, next day, but the next day, the Democrats, I think this was kind of a response. So Congressman... Adam Schiff, who used to be my congressman before I moved out of, out of Glendale, um, he said, and who now heads the, I think it's the, intelli the intelligence, the intelligence committee. committee, he said that they will investigate, that his committee will investigate his finances and whether or not he has benefited from the office. I think that was kind of a, like a ping pong, right? That they were responding to his... You know, to his threat. And well, like, I okay, think yeah. they were going through with sure. what they had planned. And yes. I think that he was trying to stop that. And it didn't work. Exactly. They pushed back. Right. They he pushed had back. expected, he had hoped that he could use threat, yeah. fear, to pull back Congress's investigation. Wrong. Who thinks? That? I mean, how can he think that's going to work? I don't understand how he thinks that could possibly work. I would no more begin to try to figure out what anything Donald Trump <laughs> thinks is there in that mind of his. Um, yeah. I will tell you the one thread that might tie that together is that that's how he worked on the 26th floor of Trump Tower. That's mm -hmm. how he ran his yeah. family business. Yeah. 
guess what? This ain't the family business. Well, yeah, exactly. And But he might be thinking, well, so far this tone has worked for me, so I'm just going to keep it up. But, of course, now it's Nancy's house, like you said, and all of these people are heading committees, and they're, ch- they're now chairmen and chairwomen of committees that can investigate him and can go after his policies. And cetera, will. And will, for sure. And so uh, what did he respond when he heard about what Adam Schiff said? He said, like, oh, who is that? Like, you know, and, and he said, who is that? Who is Adam Schiff? And, uh, and he said, oh, he has no base. He has no basis for doing that. And he's just a political hack trying to make a political point. And I'm like, what's that old saying? With the kettle, something about, or something about the kettle it's being black. It's the kettle calling the, <laughs> the, the, the pot black. Yeah, that's good, too. That's the kettle black. I mean, come on. It's anyway. I guess the unity didn't last too long. There wasn't ever any. There was never that. So, Sherry, today we are just shy of one year until the Iowa caucuses. It is too early to begin to analyze the run-up to the 2020 presidential primaries, but we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) So first of all, the 2020 campaign has already started, right? Right. The campaign to elect a Democratic nominee is going to be crowded. It's going to be intense, and I think it's going to be very hard fought. Right now, there are, I think, 10 declared Democrats, 9 or 10. Yeah. Why not just say 53? It's yeah. pretty close. <laughs> well, it's pretty close. So there's like 10 declared Democratic presidential candidates. I mean, that those are the well-known. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people that sign up. <laughs> you know, that there's like 150 presidential candidates already, but most of them don't matter because it's like, you know, some, some guy out of the street that signs up for that. But anyway... And there's like another 20 that are thinking about it. So Yeah, I, I would expect that it's between 20 or 30 at the, at the start of the season. And then there's the potential for independent candidacies. And of course, there's all the third, third party or whatever. But So my first piece of this 2020 campaign that I wrote last week for La Opinion checked in with different political analysts, including Sherry, with this question. What did I say? With this, well, you said the best things. Oh, thank you. What do Democrats need to defeat Trump? By that, I mean, what kind of candidate, what kind of campaign, or what kind of program? So, first, so what I heard from all the experts that I talked to, first, there are things that can be controlled and things that can't be, like the economy, for example. A good economy at the end of his first term is better for him than a bad economy. This just in. This just in. I mean, it sounds obvious to us, but it may not be that obvious to other people. Second, you cannot be overconfident. It's not enough not to be Trump. You actually have to take him seriously and count on him being a serious threat, no matter what, he, no matter what his poll numbers say right now. He can win. He already won once, right? So third, they'll have to turn out the Democratic base and win the independence, even after a potentially divisive Democratic primary. A vigorous primary can be a good thing and create a better candidate. But last time, it created grudges that meant 
votes lost and people voting for third candidates who essentially took votes away from Hillary. We've talked about this, you know, mm -hmm. Jill Stein and all that. And the most difficult one that one of the experts told me was the candidate needs to be ready to face Trump in his terrain of the verbal fight, the Twitter war, if you will. Oh, yes. He's very effective at this. He dominates in this area. He creates names for people and ridicules them. Whoever faces him needs to at least be able to withstand this and not look like a wimp or wimpette. Is that a word? <laughs> When they go low, you can't go high. You have to at least know how to respond and not be dominated by him. What do you think, Sherry? I think that they ought to talk very intensely and seriously with Nancy Pelosi. Oh, she's done well, what hasn't she? What you've just described. <laughs> I, the, CNN just came out with a, a poll which asks... Democrats, uh, what are you going to be looking for in a candidate uh, against Donald Trump? And 49% of the sample, they said that they wanted a, a candidate who has a good chance of beating Donald Trump. <laughs> and who came out ahead? Joe Biden. Kind of interesting. Hmm. Second, they looked at, and this is truly interesting, given all the newbies running around Congress and giving the blowback from Trump's now almost three years in office, they're looking for somebody who has the right experience, whatever that might be, to be president. The last thing that they want to see, that they care about in their candidates, only 19% say they want a candidate who can bring an outsider's perspective to Washington. Yeah, we don't need any more outsiders. We have so many now, <laughs> and this one in particular uh, really yeah. isn't making it. Nowhere, interestingly, is social media mentioned. The ability to take Trump on mm -hmm. in social media, but I think you're absolutely right, and your interviewees hit it on the head that this will be a different kind of campaign. Mm -hmm. And Already on the Democratic side, everyone who possibly can is forswearing dark money, is forswearing big contributors. And one of the guidelines for being included in the Democratic primary debate will be how much did you raise in small contributions, oh, which wow. means internet, web, online. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different it's dynamic. Under, yeah. You know, being rich and or having access to millions upon millions right out the bat isn't bad, but it could be a little negative for Democrats running, let's say, in the early primaries. And that's mm. quite a quandary. Interesting. So let's go through some of the people who have already said they were running or who have established the so-called sure. kind of exploratory committee, which usually means the same thing. <laughs> so um, and I'm going to start with like the alphabetic order. So it's not preferential. The last person to join was Cory Booker. Yes. U.S. Senator from New Jersey. He announced, My home state. Yeah. He announced just a few days ago. So, the then uh, Pete Buttigieg. How do you say this? Buttigieg. No, nobody knows how to pronounce it, and he said, "Just call me Mayor Pete." 
Mayor Pete, he's <laughs> the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Oh, yeah. He announced he was running for president on January 23rd. I have no idea who this guy is. Well, he's attractive on the media. Oh, he yes. is, I believe, openly gay, and, and that, that. Oh, that's helps. good. You know, people kind of have, are drawn to that. It's a different. Um, yeah. He 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 was in Afghanistan, I believe. Uh, he's a veteran. As a naval officer, yes, oh. he's a veteran. Um, I've I've been watching him. You I, I don't you know, you don't know who he is. I but don't know how I he gets don't. known, but. When you look at him, when you hear him, he's fairly impressive, and he's young. Okay, um, let's continue with the letter C. Julian Castro, mm -hmm. uh, a former U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and San Antonio mayor, formally announced his candidacy on January 12th. He's a twin brother. Yes. And he's the, the son of a, an immigrant woman uh, who's, who was also an activist uh, for the community, and he's... You know, he's, he's pretty well known in, in Texas, not as much in the rest of the country for by the Latino community. Even though he was secretary of HUD, he's not really that well known. But I, I, I gather, you he's know, he's been he, around, though. And I'm telling you, he's just not that well known outside of Texas by Latinos. Ah. What, you know, that's what I'm saying. OK. Then uh, John Delaney, a former U.S. representative from Maryland. Whom I've never heard of. Uh, I don't know who he is. Uh, so the next one in the alphabetical order is Tulsi Gabbard. She's a U.S. representative from Hawaii. Yes. She is quite interesting and a little bit controversial. Well, what's um, the controversy? She apparently uh, has said something, some things against right. gays. And That's I, right. She, she's had some like issues in the past. The next one is Kirsten Gillibrand, a U.S. senator from New York. She was making faces yesterday in the <laughs> State yeah. of the Union. She wasn't alone. Um, then our own senator from California, Kamala Harris, who just announced as well. Um, Elizabeth Warren, the U.S. senator from Massachusetts. Uh, she announced an exploratory committee. I, I hear some people are saying that she's... Um, She's going down the drain now that uh, people have discovered that she actually claimed to be a Native American in her Texas bar registration card from 1986, apparently from her own hand. Uh, she had written American Indian when asked to identify her race. So this this whole issue about her identifying as, you know, as American Indian or Native American has has been it, it's it's there it hasn't gone away and it's gets it appears to get worse every time Look, something comes up can i make a point here when you say it's there and it doesn't seem to be going away yes it is quite frankly because yes. she won't let it go true, away true true uh you know what might have happened if when donald trump first called her pocahontas she said i am honored that you call me pocahontas she was a brave woman. She helped our new country. She helped move our country west. And then it just shut up. You should be advising these candidates, Sharon. Heaven for fan, dear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a sad thing because she is a candidate that has very interesting things to say. You know, she, she has been very hard on Wall Street mm -hmm. and she has been 
you know, very, uh, very good on, you know, the financial reforms and all that in the past. And obviously she has some very um, good points to make in a campaign. But if she starts, if things continue to come up like this evidence, her campaign is going to be short-lived, unfortunately. Well, what does that mean for Bernie Sanders? We haven't even discussed him yet. Yeah, Bernie Sanders, there he is. Well, he hasn't launched, right? He hasn't said he's I running. don't think he's, uh, to be perfectly frank, I don't think he's formally declared, but, but it's everyone assumed says, he's going to go. Yeah, everyone says. I don't know what it means, but there's a lot of... Um, there's there are some people there's a lot of people that don't want him to run in, that I've heard like the, Dem Probably the Democratic Party, including Elizabeth Warren and well, for sure. Brown. It's it's almost like people want to start anew <laughs> with a blank slate and <laughs> not run anyone that ran the last time. You know what I mean? But he, you know, if he wants to run, he has the right to run. So and he has also he has an interesting point to make. By the way. The cameras pointed at him when the president was talking about socialists <laughs> during the Soto. Because address. I think it telegraphed to Bernie as it telegraphed to me, quite frankly, that the theme of socialism is going to be a major theme yeah. for Trump in the 2020 campaign, and he's going to try to hang that around Democrats' necks. So who do you think among these people, I know it's too early, but who do you think have a good chance of emerging? I have learned... <laughs> never to say never in politics. Never to say never. That same CNN poll yeah, you never of know. Democrats indicated that among dem Democrats prioritizing the candidate's ability to beat Trump, I mean, because that's what they say was but their what does way. that mean? Exactly. What do you mean? To beat Trump? It means to beat no, Trump. No, no, no. I mean, what are some of these? How, how do you know who has the ability to They ask. We don't know. This was asked on the survey. Sure. And the answers... And people thought it was Biden? The answers were Biden and one candidate we really haven't discussed at length, Kamala Harris, oh. our junior senator. Um, I, I, I personally think at this point, things can change, right? Of, of course. course. At this point, I think she's a strong contender. Right now, she's the flavor of the month. Yeah. Beto who? Yeah. I know. Yeah. No. But she is the flavor of the yeah. month. Can she maintain it? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? It's 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 too long. I mean there's there's too many months and years even um to to the election, to the uh, primaries. But uh we know that uh it's going to be crowded that they're going to have probably they're going to have these debates where they're going to have like uh have to divide the debates. They, they're intending to do exactly that. Yeah, like, you know, remember the last time with the Republican primary, they had to have, like, two different debates or, you know, right. the first eight and, this, you know, the other eight, and it's going to be the same thing. But I think that's kind of healthy in, in a democracy, you know. there's, there's If a anybody watched them. <laughs> we will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's that's all that matters. So what do you think? Is there going to be any kind of challenge inside the Republican Party against Trump? It's a very good question. Uh, I you know, there are question. rumors that uh, former Ohio Governor John Kasich may, may challenge. Um, I have heard that the Trump or campaign organization is already taking steps to try to preclude 
any kind of a challenge in terms of organization, in terms of signing up consultants, if you will. Um, I think they're taking seriously the possibility that there might be somebody uh, to challenge the incumbent. Hmm. I don't think it's going to be Mitt Romney. Um, I don't think, obviously, it might have been a couple of years ago, but not now, Lindsey Graham. Um, oh. I, I don't think it's going to be uh, former Senator Jeff Flake. No. At this point in time, the Republican Party is a totally own subsidiary yeah. of the Trump organization. Totally. There's like 80% approval. More than, the... yeah, 88, I think, was the it's last like one I saw. It's like they love him, you know? So and... I don't think there's going to be... A a challenger that can go after that. But who knows? Who I mean, knows? Who knows what happens to him from now? I mean, there's, there can be all kinds of things, you know, come up in all the different investigations. Well, there is a question exactly as to whether or not he's going to serve out even the first term. Right. You know. It, That's still a question. Yes. I, I think I, I have never seen anything quite so angst-making and fluid and volatile as the political environment that we are in today. <sighs> All right. Okay, Sherry. Let's move on. Okay. So next, we'll share our nominations for this week's Political Earthquakes. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Pundits. Talk about a political earthquake. Virginia, the state of Virginia, oh. is imploding. Or Jeez. more accurately, Virginia Democratic politics has been blown apart because Virginia's top-ranking, three top-ranking state officials, all Democrats, we have begun ripping through Republicans. Now let's do Democrats. <laughs> have each become embroiled in scandals over the course of one week. Now this may take a while because there are so many actors mm. and so many plays involved Summarize in this. It. Remember, in the last election, Democrats won a whole lot in Virginia, including three Democrats who upset three Republican incumbents to go to Congress, helping the Democrats to achieve their House majority. Then, boom! boom. What the Wall Street Journal, and I love it <laughs> that it's the Wall Street Journal, has described as, quote, a scrappy pro-Trump outfit backed by Republican operatives, part of a growing wave of low-cost, ideologically driven news publishers, end quote posted on its website the image of a page from the medical school yearbook of the incumbent Democratic governor, Ralph Northam. Um, it showed a photo of a man in blackface and another in a Ku Klux Klan costume. Now, the governor said, yeah, I'm really sorry. I did it. I'm in that photo. And then he said, 
never mind. He thought about it and denied being part of it. And he has, at least until this moment, when we are recording, he has refused to resign. But the calls for his resignation are growing bigger and louder. Hmm. And Democrats are nervous because one of their plans for 2020 was to take the high road, the moral high road. And now, you know, against Donald Trump, and now it's looking more and more hmm. difficult. In addition, just days later, the incumbent lieutenant governor, Fairfax, who would succeed if Governor Northam resigned, um, next in line for the governorship, was charged with sexual abuse Ugh. by a political science professor. Mm -hmm. I'm a political science professor. I'm mm -hmm. not happy about all of this, I will tell you. But a political science professor who teaches at Scripps College yeah. in Claremont, California. He says, Fair, Fairfax says, no, I did not do it. She sent out a statement full of details. Fairfax sent out a statement saying, no, I don't remember anything. I was not a part uh, of do you what, want this woman. Let me say something. Yeah. Sherry, the lieutenant governor, Fairfax, he has hired the lawyers used by Kavanaugh, by Brett Kavanaugh. Yes. Uh, now, and, she... and she's hired the lawyer used by Christine Ford, the woman who accused Brett Kavanaugh. What the heck is you, going you, on you here? You can't make this up. No. Hey, Laura, thank you for bringing that up. I Jesus. think that's a, that's a really Christ. interesting point in all of this. Okay, so if that wasn't enough, the person who is next in line, the Attorney General, also a Democrat, boom, boom, the Attorney General, uh, on his own, volunteered that at one point he like the photo on Northam's face, uh, Facebook, yeah, yearbook page, <laughs> he had dressed in a wig and brown makeup yeah, at a college face. party. It was blackface, mm -hmm. but it was he who brought it up, he who immediately apologized. But what happens if all three of these men have to, have to resign and do resign and nobody has yet been appointed to one of their three offices. Well, fourth in line is the Republican Speaker of the Virginia House of mm. Delegates. Which is why the right-wing blog brought up the information in the first place. At but, least two. We don't, I mean, but both Fairfax and Northern were outed, and I'll to, talk about this a little to later. To be fair, with the right-wing blog, if it's true, it's true, right? I mean, if they brought it up, good for them. I mean, it's... Well... All is fair in politics and love. <laughs> I don't know. Well... The truth is the truth. Politics and love. All is true. Boy, that's All is fair. All is oh, fair. Okay, because all Not is true, true is all an is, oxymoron. All is you're fair. talking about politics and love. All is fair in politics and love. Now, that in and of itself is an earthquake. But it, perhaps an even longer lasting, bigger one is the role of social media in, in allowing this, in making this happen. Um, 
there is a proliferation of all of these sites, both on all sides of the spectrum, with no corroboration. Yeah. With, you know, the basically, as one consultant put it, opposition research is now a hobby like collecting stamps. Yeah. And news, quote unquote, news sites, right? Ex- quote news, unquote. <laughs> ideologically bent yeah. news sites. So the bottom line in all of this is, I think, that the political earthquake that has shaken Virginia is beyond that. And quite frankly, it's a teaching moment on several levels, including where is social media taking us and where is it allowing us to take it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, my earthquake, I I can't finish this show without talking a little bit about Venezuela because that's where I was born. Um, That's where I grew up. That's That's where I studied journalism. Well, that's the place I was made. So um, two weeks ago, we know that, um, you know, we were actually recording the show two weeks ago, the same day that mm-hmm. these things happened, that the opposition decided to uh, aggressively challenge Maduro, the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, um, on his legitimacy. And there was a declaration of the president of the National Assembly as um, president in charge. There's been a whole lot of things happened since then. I I have, you know, tried to be as informative as I can to my friends here in the United States. I am obviously um, very concerned about what's going on, but I fear that there's a lot of there's a lack of information. First of all, because American media doesn't really cover uh, international news that much or that deep anymore. But you know, you have access online to a whole variety of media, and it it's it's possible to learn a little bit more. But most most Americans aren't that informed about Venezuela, so this is why maybe the president can say things, can talk about Venezuela and socialism and this and that, and just gloss over things that that are happening there. Um, But I found myself having trouble on social media when I talk about Venezuela because it's usually framed left and right, right? It's usually framed conservatives and, you know, and, and progressives or whatever. It's usually, you know, right wing and left wing. That's that's more accurate. The reaction of some of my progressive friends when I express my opinions about the need for a democratic transition in Venezuela and my concern that this uh, government of Venezuela is leading the country to, to an even further crisis and that they essentially need to agree to a transition has been met by attacks from the left and from my progressive friends that are usually on the same side when we talk about immigration or American politics or, you know, where we stand on Trump, etc. I find it hard sometimes to explain to people, you cannot just fit the whole 20 years of a regime 
in one single label. You cannot say, well, this is just a coup that the United States is leading. Just, you know, they're going to invade just like they did in Panama or just like they did in Chile. You know, the Chile comparison particularly strikes me because um, some of the of my lefty friends are comparing the, the, the political declaration, essentially, by the opposition against Maduro that is actually being supported by many countries in the world with the coup that the United States did in Chile in 1973 against Salvador Allende. And I think that's absolutely BS because... You're talking to someone who is, shall we say, a virgin in all of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you sort of fill in a little about this coup in, in, in Chile and what motivated it without doing an entire history lecture but well um, i'm not i'm not making the connection because i don't know anything i'm one of those people who don't know anything about it i know because these are chilean people that are telling me this right that the 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 people who suffered through the coup that the united states that the cia essentially uh decided they couldn't they were going to get rid of this elected president called salvador allende who was a leftist and who wanted to, you know, he moved in to establish essentially a socialist government in Chile. And at the time, we were living in the Cold War, and there was Cuba, and there was all these things going on. And essentially, the CIA went in and overthrew Salvador Allende, killed him, mm-hmm. and then installed a guy called Augusto Pinochet, whom yes. you may okay. remember as one of the most horrible, right-wing, bloody dictatorships in the Americas. There's no question that the United States went in and installed Pinochet. There's no question the United States went in and installed the military junta in Argentina. They overthrew the um, Arvens in Guatemala. I mean, there's a whole history of what the United States did in Latin America. But you cannot just fit that into what's going on in Venezuela right now. Uh-huh. The situation in Venezuela is very complex. First of all, if you're going to compare it with Chile in 73, you have to realize that you're talking about a president, Nicolás Maduro, who is more likely to be comparable to Pinochet than he is oh. to Allende, Okay, in my opinion. This is a guy who, four years ago, when there were legislative elections and the opposition won the National Assembly, he essentially went in and dissolved the National Assembly and created his own assembly so he could govern unopposed. And when people rose up and went to the streets to protest, they killed a whole bunch of people. They killed people left and right. So this is not a precedent This is not a government that has democratic leanings. I'm having having to explain very basic things to Americans. For example, that the oil issue. They're saying, well, they just want to go in for the oil. Well, first of all, the oil in Venezuela is already partly in the hands of the Russians and the Chinese because those are two of the major partners of Nicolás Maduro in right now in 
providing loans to his government so he can prop up the economy that is in serious trouble in exchange for either oil, something else we don't know, like, for example, Russia has other interests that we don't know about that may be more shady. We know that the government of Venezuela is involved in narco-trafficking, so in allowing narco-trafficking to go through Venezuela. And uh, we also know that China has loaned a whole lot of money and that they also have interest in the oil industry of Venezuela. So if the United States wants the oil, they're going to have to go over the Russians <laughs> and the Chinese, right? So this whole thing that people feel that the United States is going to just go in and take the resources, the resources are already sort of mortgaged, right? Anyway, it's, it's a very complicated situation. I just want to tell people who are listening to do a little bit more research before they make a judgment because it's a very complex situation and it doesn't do Venezuelans like me any favors. It's actually kind of insulting when people tell me, oh, you know, it's just the United States wants to invade Venezuela. Well, I think you should, yeah, they might want to invade Venezuela, but there's more to it than that, right? God help us. Yeah. No, I don't think, uh, personally, I don't think that's going to happen and I don't want that to happen, mm -hmm. but I do want to see something. I do want to see a transition to a new election and a democratic government in Venezuela. Let's just make that very clear. You know, I think you're onto something, and I think for better or for worse, Pilar, that Americans will learn more, will learn a broader spectrum of perspectives if Trump remains as involved as he is now. Think about it, you know, Trump's focus on an issue on an area, on a policy, influences media coverage. And yeah. Trump hasn't been real big on focusing on international affairs. No. He, if this continues to be important to Trump, it will continue to be important to the media. And I think you'll find a bit more concentration on the issue. I just have one... Uh, for my response, I guess, I just have a, a quick question. We talk, You're talking about an earthquake. When does that political earthquake occur, or has it occurred, or are we in the middle of a political earthquake as it relates to Venezuela? We are in the middle of a slow moving, and I say slow because it started two weeks ago when the opposition leader, Juan uh, Guaido, I always forget his first name, damn it. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so bad. Um, he, when he, in the anniversary of a major patriotic date for Venezuela, um, he swore, he swore in, a, in a way, he swore himself in, but with the basis of the Constitution. Because... Ricolas Maduro, essentially, um, the last time he was elected, elected, quote-unquote, in 2018, those elections were extremely highly questionable for many, many reasons that I cannot get into here. But it, one major reason is that he kept most of the opposition from running. <laughs> he essentially illegalized all the parties that were competitive. So he basically ran against people who were not really well-known, and he... He um, he won the election 
the turnout was less than 30%. It, it was it was a really... Pretty high for America, you know, for local well, elections. But, but not for presidential no. elections in such a polarized country. No. So uh, the, the earthquake comes when the international community starts supporting the opposition, the opposition president, let's call him that. And they start coming out and saying, yes, we agree. Nicolas Maduro is not a legitimate president. There needs to be a transition. We're going to support Mr. Guaido, and we're going to we're going to um, give uh, President Maduro the opportunity to to say he's going to call elections. And of course, he hasn't taken that opportunity, and I don't think he will. Right now, there is talk about having some kind of negotiation um, where other countries who are more neutral would participate or would uh, intercede between the two the two sides. But there seems to be no way out as we speak. The only thing that's keeping Maduro on is the support of the military. And what's keeping the support of the military is the bribes he mm-hmm. provides to the top military. So it's it's complicated, Sherry. It's it would take us a whole show just to talk about Venezuela. And And we may. And and we may at some point. But I just want my friends in the progressive community, and that includes some journalists. You know that includes some shows that I that I always watched or listened to, um, to actually do a little bit more research, you know, and and look into what's really going on in Venezuela because this is a very very sad and difficult situation. Just today, and we're recording on Wednesday, um, February sixth. Just today, the government of Venezuela placed big trucks in mm-hmm. a bridge between Colombia and Venezuela because they knew humanitarian help was going to be coming through this bridge. And they much rather stop it because they know it's coming from the United States, from Canada, from the, from the European countries that are essentially supporting the opposition candidate, but who are saying, this is not political. We want to help. This is humanitarian aid. But, of course, this is a challenge to Maduro, right? Because he's saying, well, you know, we're not beggars. We don't need this help. And just now, I just read on Twitter that a Puerto Rican plane just landed in Venezuela with humanitarian aid. I don't know how that happened. But I hope there's more because the situation of Venezuelans is very dire. And it's very sad to see my country like that. That is an earthquake. That is an earthquake. Period. Anyway, that's our show for today, people. We'll be back <laughs> in two weeks with another edition of the Pundets Tackle Politics. Please follow us on Twitter at TPundets and our Facebook page, The Pundets Podcast. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And our website is thepundets.com. Please write us with questions or comments at thepundetsshow, double S, at gmail.com. Many, many thanks to our audio engineer, Carlo Lopez. Please visit his homepage, theechoparkproject.com, where you can find info not only about his New York-style Latin band, but his studio, which provides recording and producing services. And ours are a part of it. He's good, people. Thanks, Carlo, and thank all of you who are listening. (laughs) 
Thanks, Carlo, for the Pundets theme song also. And if we were only on television, all of you, you could see Pilar and me salsaing to that wonderful music. Yeah, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be on television at some point. At some point, we will let you see what we look like. Oh, God. And, <laughs> and thanks for now, anyway, until we are visible. Thanks for listening, everyone. <clears throat> the Pundets will be around in two weeks to tackle the wild, wild world of politics. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.